Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. I first found myself having to learn Scala when I started using Spark. This was around version 0.4 or 0.5. Prior to Spark, I'd look at Scala books, but I just never found the excuse to uh, delve into it. In the early days of Spark, Scala was a necessity, and I quickly came to appreciate this new language and have continued to use it enthusiastically. I recently spoke with O'Reilly author and TypeSafe's resident big data architect Dean Wampler about Scala and other programming languages, as well as the big data ecosystem and its recent interest in real-time applications. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here with my good friend and O'Reilly author and Strata Plus Hadoop World Program Committee member, Dean Wampler. Welcome to the Data Show, Dean. Well, thank you very much, Ben. It's always great to talk with you about this cool stuff that we work on. So first off, a little bit about your background, um, PhD in theoretical nuclear physics. So what exactly did you study in grad school, Dean? Yeah, it sounds, it sounds impressive. Um, no, actually, I worked for uh, an advisor studying the properties of nuclei that could tell us uh, answers about elementary particles. And in particular, there's this elusive particle called the neutrino that the sun is spitting out constantly, but it's so elusive it's hard to measure. And at the time, we were trying to figure out if it actually had a mass or if it's massless like photons of light. Turns out it does have a mass that was measured some years after my time. But uh, I got started there. And the funny thing is, I, it was mostly writing computer models. I mean, that's when I really learned how to do things like object-oriented programming in Fortran, no less, uh, to try to manage the complexity of these uh, systems I was modeling. Uh, and that, that sort of you know, fired the bug or whatever in, in, in me that uh, eventually led to becoming a full-time software engineer. That's interesting because... Uh in physics, you know, when they say theoretical, these are people who are pen and paper. But you were you were doing uh, scientific computation. Pretty much, yeah. So there was some. I wrote some amazing notebooks of you know formulas, but <laughs> and this was like right before Mathematica came out, so I couldn't even exploit tools like that. But no, I just they didn't let me near hardware. I guess that's uh, other than computers. Yeah, that was sort of what distinguished me as a theoretician from a experimentalist. So then, did you uh, did you try to pursue a career in academia, or just went directly into software? You know, I decided uh, by the time I finished, I really wanted to do software. That I did develop the passion for it by that point, and uh, brought a unique perspective. You know, it's it's ironic. This was you know around 1990 or so uh, before there was such a thing as data science, and today. People like me go right into data science because we have the kind of statistics background and the problem-solving skills. Back then, it was you know not quite the same uh, landscape, so I got into uh, like uh, embedded system software, medical devices, things like that, and a bunch of internet companies came along, worked on that stuff, and eventually found myself back to data, uh, which happened a few years ago. So you uh, wrote one of the first books on Scala, but you mentioned you started out in Fortran. So take us through a quick tour of how you went from Fortran to Scala. Yeah, it was uh, it's it was kind of following just what was you know sort of the norms of the time. Uh, I was using it, this Vax extended version of Fortran that had things like data structures and stuff like that that seems you know old hat today, but at the time was kind of radical. 
uh, and figured out how to treat those as like objects. So it was a, a natural progression to start writing C and then C++ code that uh, used sort of the similar ideas. And then, of course, with C++, real object orientation. Uh, and, and most of the system-side programming in those days, you know, like on these medical devices I mentioned, was done with C and C++. They're really, I think it was a bit short-sighted. Uh, they're Obviously, high-performance stuff should be written in fast languages, let's say. But there was a lot of room for things like higher-level scripting to glue it together that people just didn't try. Uh, and that kind of raised the complexity level, I think, just working in these low-level languages all the time. But anyway... You, you, were never a, you were never into scripting languages like Perl, Python? You. I, ironically, though, I did use Perl for writing tools, uh, development tools. I found that it was the, like the regular expression stuff made it really easy to write tools that we use for uh, manipulating source code or analyzing source code for various you know, purposes. So I was actually pretty good at Perl for a long time. And then you then switched to Java when the whole internet thing right. started. But even then, kept using these, uh, actually Perl and Bash. I'm, I'm a pretty uh, experienced Bash programmer because, the, you know, you can just get stuff done, as, as, you, as I'm sure anybody who's listening who's ever used Python or Bash or Ruby, you know what it's like. You can just get stuff done quickly. It may not be the most performant code, but man, it works and it, it gets the job done and lets you get back to, to other things. So I've always been a believer in that. And for a while, even was doing conference talks about embracing polyglot programming where you, you know, use a fast uh, low-level language where you need it, but then glue things together with higher-level languages that you know, give you the t productivity that you need and don't require the same performance characteristics. So, how did you find out, and when, and what was your excuse for uh, using Scala? Yeah, that's kind of an interesting story too. And it started around 2007, and I noticed that a lot of people were talking about the so-called multi-core problem. We'd kind of hit the vertical growth path for a uh, limit, I guess you'd say, for Moore's law. And increasingly, we needed to go horizontal, and that meant we needed to get better at writing concurrent code, which even today, people are not very good at writing. But uh, people started talking about functional programming as the right way to think about it because you know, it embraces immutability, and that turns out to be the most common source of bugs that you see in uh, you know, like multi-threaded code. So I decided, well, maybe I should learn about this. It'd probably complement my view that object-oriented programming is the way to go. And I picked a language that, you know, was sort of familiar uh, in the sense that it kind of looked like Java. It ran on the JVM. And then what happened was why, I actually Why not Clojure? You know, I actually just, <laughs> I, I made the choice between the two, and I just kind of picked Scala because of its pragmatic emphasis on embracing object orientation and functional. But I did actually, you know, evaluate the two, and I, I think Clojure is fantastic. I, uh, a lot of my best friends are Clojure programmers. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, but, you know, Scala just fit me better. I actually fell in love with the language, and that's when I, you know, decided to write a book about it and uh, found that my thinking about design flipped to be more functional and complemented by object-oriented programming more than the other way around. You know, I mean, for me, I think uh, I kind of looked at Scala. I looked at your book, actually. I thought, oh, this is interesting, but I, I, you know, I don't really have a reason to use this right now. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then Spark happened. I was one of the early users of Spark, and there was, you know, there was only one way to use Spark. Yeah. In the beginning. And then I was kind of a little resentful. Oh, man, they're going to force us into using this thing. And But then I loved it right away, actually. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think Spark 
really shows Scala in the best possible light. Yeah, you can certainly find plenty of criticism of it on the net that you know people think it's too complicated or they don't like the type system or something. But I think Scala does hit that uh, spark, rather hits that sweet spot of uh, exposing what it's best at doing, which is like type inference and you know collection oriented manipulation of data without really forcing you to become an expert in some of the more advanced features. So that's that's one thing I really like about it. It's funny, I've, I've done some work with Python since and big data like the Python API for Spark, uh, as well as the Scala one. And what I really miss when I'm doing the Python version are two things. One, it's a, the, the Python syntax is a little less consistent than on the Scala side. But also, I miss the type inference to know what what did I just do? You know, what kind of structure or right. schema did I just right. end up with? And uh, so I found that I missed that. The things that uh, you're resistant to beginning, you start missing. Once, yeah. Once you get used to it. Um, so actually. Uh, you ended up at TypeSafe, which is a company commercializing Scala. But even before then, you were also involved in big data in general. Because I think you were doing consulting in uh, some of these uh, Hadoop ecosystem technologies and also even wrote a book for us on Hive, right? Yeah, that's right. It's, you know, just as I made a big career switch, you know, around 1990 from physics to software, when big data was starting to get hot, you know, say around 2010 or so, when it sort of got to me, I guess, you know, I realized, you know, here's an opportunity for, you know, a new growing industry. It's very interesting, hard problems. The mathematics, at least on the, like the machine learning side is, you know, with the kind of stuff I had to do in grad school and it was very attractive. So, you know, I took a consulting job, learned on the, in the, trenches. You know, I hate to say this now, but there were times when I was just one day ahead of the customer in terms of knowing <laughs> what the heck I was doing. Um, you know, but I just learned on, uh, you know, on the road, learned the hard way in the trenches and sometimes just hated the job. But, uh, but in the end, the experience was fantastic and it really positioned me well to help TypeSafe, you know, develop a strategy for big data. It's so, focused around Spark, but you know, sure. just in general, what does the landscape need? Quickly rattle off the technologies you were working with as a consultant. Yeah, so it was it was Hadoop oriented almost exclusively. Uh, used Hive a lot, and saw. And the reason I co-wrote the book on Hive was I saw there was a real need for a, a good uh, reference. There, there was already one for Pig, which I'd used as well, but uh, uh, yeah, I felt that Hive needed to be addressed, so I, I co-wrote the book on that. Um, but uh, some HBase, a lot of Hive, a lot of Uzi. Uh, so a lot of MapReduce programming, uh, and then later scalding this uh, Twitter Scala-based right. API right. on top right. of it. To uh, you know, typically, as you know, as probably most of the listeners know, the big data landscape tends to have like three groups of people. There's the system administrators, there's the data scientists, and then there's the data engineers who do the plumbing in the middle. Uh, and so that's mostly what I ended up doing was plumbing, but uh, sometimes more data science stuff too. So let's uh, kind of delve into some of the things that. You seem to be interested now, just uh, seeing what you uh, talk about in your presentations and your writings. Uh, so let's uh, take, for example, Spark. Actually, Spark and Mesos together. You seem to talk a lot about these two technologies together. So for our listeners, just quickly describe uh, both, I guess. Some of our listeners will be familiar with Spark, but Maybe not all of them will be familiar with Mesos. Okay. So um, whenever you run a Spark job, you have to run it on a cluster if, if you're going to do anything with a large data set. It, it's, you know, a side note, it's a very nice capability that you can actually run it on a laptop when you're developing or working with smaller data sets. But of course, the real interesting part is to run on a cluster. So you need some cluster infrastructure. And 
fortunately, it works very nicely with yarn, so it works very nicely in the Hadoop ecosystem. But there's this new uh, cluster management ecosystem that emerged out of also out of Berkeley, like Spark, uh, and was nursed to production readiness at Twitter called Mesos, uh, started by Benjamin Hintman and some other guys who went on to found a company called Mesosphere. And the nice thing about Mesos over Yarn is that it's a much more flexible, capable resource manager so that it's, it basically treats your clusters like one giant machine of resources and gives you that sort of uh, illusion, you know, ignoring things like network latencies and stuff, that you're just working with a giant machine. And it, you know, allocates resources to your jobs, uh, multiple users, you know, all that stuff. But because of its greater flexibility, it can not only run things like Spark jobs, it can run services like HDFS or Cassandra or Kafka or any of these tools. Or even a long-running service or even your website. Yeah, yeah. People, Twitter apparently is now using it for almost everything. Uh, they're almost their entire infrastructure. Uh, so what I saw was, you know, there was a, a situation here where we had maybe a, a successor to Yarn. It's obviously not as mature an ecosystem as the Hadoop ecosystem, but not everybody needs that maturity. Some people would rather have the flexibility of Mesos uh, and that maybe are solving more focused problems. So I saw it as an opportunity for TypeSafe to fill a need, maybe a need that could grow to be very big over time if Mesos is very successful. And so far, you know, it's it's really working well for us. We don't have, you know, a ton of customers, but that's okay. We're, we're growing and learning ourselves, and uh, we're very happy with the results we're getting now from customer adoption. So the other thing about Mesos, as you pointed out, it grew out of Berkeley. And in fact, uh, to, in many ways, Spark was written as a proof of concept of Mesos. Yes. And, and so Mesos has always been kind of, I guess, uh, supportive and, and also plays well with... Uh, some of these big data ecosystem components because there are other cluster management tools out there that uh, are maybe uh, newer and also not as tightly integrated in, into the big data space so i'm thinking in particular about kubernetes yeah yeah kubernetes is an interesting uh, system certainly it brings you know tremendous credibility having emerged out of google um it's not clear to me uh, yet where that's going to go i i think there it does make it easier to do sophisticated resource management on other systems, not necessarily Mesos, not necessarily Hadoop, like maybe, uh, you know, running your own in Amazon or something. So I, I'll be interested to see where this goes. Uh, I just, I don't really, really have a good sense of it, you know, where it's headed right now, but it's, um, you know, it's sort of like a thousand flowers blooming scenario or maybe a Cambrian explosion right now in the whole right. cloud space that right. we've got a lot of great options. It's moving fast. It can be a little hard to keep up. <laughs> But uh, so, uh, it's so good. Dean, when you say uh, Spark on Mesos, you you TypeSafe are actually helping customers run Spark on-prem using Mesos. That's correct. Yeah, we have uh, several large customers that are doing that, so we're offering production support. And uh, we've recently partnered with Mesosphere on their Infinity initiative to you know, provide a, a wider ecosystem of tools. There's other players supporting Cassandra and Kafka, so that you get a you know, sort of a Hadoop-like experience. It's obviously not as mature, but it's we think it's got tremendous potential. So let's uh, complete the lap of the Ber on this Berkeley data analytics stack. You've mentioned mm -hmm. Spark and Mesos. I know you're also a big fan of Tachyon. And by the way, full disclosure to the audience, I'm an advisor to Databricks, which is commercializing Spark, and to <laughs> Tachyon Nexus, which is com commercializing Tachyon. But I've, I've seen either tweets or maybe posts where you're a big fan of Tachyon as well. 
Yeah, it was probably something I wrote in a men's room somewhere. Uh, no, <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, no, what, what I really like about Tachyon, and I think it's still early days, but where I think uh, the potential is there. In a way, it's analogous to Spark in that it starts with some really good fundamental ideas and then builds on them. It's, in the Spark case, it would be like uh, collection semantics over a distributed collection, the so-called resilient distributed data sets. With Tachyon, it's you know basically an in-memory distributed file system. Or, or a way to think of it, it's like a distributed cache with file system semantics. Uh, so what's attractive about that is that you can uh, basically have multiple applications accessing the same data sets in memory, you know, accessing them through like a file system kind of API or, or a more uh, proprietary API, but you get kind of in-memory speeds, but with some you know, configuration uh, to do some uh, durability uh, behind the scenes, obviously, you don't want that data to get lost if the machine goes down. So there's uh, facilities for having the data be backed to the, a file system. So I, I think it's, um, it's, it solves a number of interesting problems in uh, big data applications like sharing data between running jobs, uh, like giving you uh, much more flexibility and performance characteristics. So, are so you, I think it's are exciting. You, uh, are you and uh, TypeSafe starting to look at Tachyon? You know, we haven't looked at it in a lot of detail yet because we're still trying to be sure we have a, a good coverage for all of Spark's capabilities. But it's it's on our roadmap to in, at least investigate thoroughly. Yeah, yeah. So the other thing that uh, you've been you have been writing a lot about, uh, or at least uh, also in th talking a lot about, is this notion of reactive streams. And mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can uh, first walk us through what. Uh, you mean by that? Yeah, this is actually an industry standard uh, that's uh, a specification for uh, defining uh, back pressure in between a, com a consumer and a producer of a stream. And it's a dynamic process so that if uh, the cons First off, let's define back pressure. Okay, yeah. So back pressure would be signaling from the consumer back to the producer, hey, I can't take as much data as you're feeding me, or I can actually take more data. So it's it's this protocol for controlling the rate of flow. And the reason this is important is because, you know, a classic way of implementing a, a connection between a producer and consumer is to put a buffer, like a queue, in between them. But then you have this uh, sort of dilemma. You could make it unbounded so that it you never like fill it up, but the problem is memory is finite. So inevitably, when you think about what's going to happen in a stream system that runs for years, some weird situational setup where the the producer will just keep feeding data too fast to a consumer, and it'll eventually run out of memory and crash. So you don't like that. But you know the flip side is all right. Make these things bounded buffers, but you still haven't completely solved your problems because then what do you do when that fills up? Uh, you end up arbitrarily dropping data or doing some other thing. So the idea with back pressure is, and it's, it's again, it's one of these simple models that scales really well. Just have a negotiation happen out of bound, uh, out of band, I should say, like, you know, a separate socket connection or something, where when the consumer can keep up, it's just a push model. Yeah, you know, just keep pushing data to them. But if the consumer gets backed up, then the consumer can signal, uh, all right, send me five more or send me 10 more or whatever, that kind of thing, until gets caught up and then if you you know connect these into a big graph these oh, so, streams, so, uh, reactive streams provides a way to make that to communicate that signal yeah it's a standard for that back pressure mechanism 
And then, you know, as I was saying, if you get a a directed graph of these things, then you can make strategic decisions at the beginning. Like, okay, if I've got data coming into this system and I can't, and I'm getting back pressure, it's preventing me from handling it. At least I can make a strategic decision about what to do. You know, like flush it to disk temporarily or drop it or whatever. But I'm not having these little small guys with limited knowledge of the world making these decisions. So how does... uh how does uh, the recent work on back pressure in Spark streaming, which was largely done by TypeSafe, uh, fit into this? Yeah, so what we did um, in 1.5, which is you know, in RC status now, is we implemented a more uh, general uh, uh, mechanism for uh, providing back pressure that's more dynamic. As opposed, There was like a rate limiter feature already. It's not the reactive stream compliant back pressure mechanism, but it's a general facility that will uh, make uh, spark streams much more reliable, much less likely to have like out-of-memory errors and stuff, you know, when they're slammed with traffic. Uh, we, we hope to add on extensions later on that uh, would actually connect to uh, actual uh, standard compliant reactive streams so that you could wire together like an ACA system to Spark or uh, there's a reactive API for Kafka now. You could use that, things like this. I see. So who, so who else is contributing to this initiative? Uh, it's mostly TypeSafe and cl- uh, so, some of my colleagues in particular, uh, Julian Dragos and uh, Luc Borlier and um, a former colleague, Francois. Um, but and, it's, all, uh, it's all out in the open. This is- yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, def- it's, it's part of the um, 1.5 stream that's being finalized. Yeah, it's all open source. So let's talk a little bit about the broader industry. You, we've been talking about streaming here. It's something that uh, you and I follow closely. I mean, mm-hmm. I would say in the last 12 months or so, there's definitely been a resurgence in uh, stream processing and analysis. I, I guess, you know, it's one of these things that come and go, right? So real time was fashionable several years ago, but this time it seems like it's a real thing that uh, the tools are there and Companies are rallying around uh, making the tools even better. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I've noticed is kind of this notion that stream processing is the way to think about all of your processing, even batch. So the notion that a stream processing is a superset of batch. So certainly the folks at Google and Confluent uh, advocate for this kind of notion. So what do you think about all of this? I think it's a, it's a really interesting model, and you know, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense that um, uh, you could think of a batch job as just a stream that's finite as opposed to infinite. And the source, could, you know, uh, these streaming systems normally are somewhat agnostic about the source of data. Well, it could just be files and a hard drive kind of thing. So I think it's a good model. Um, what's interesting about it, though, just from uh, you know, going down, let's say a, la- a layer deeper in um, uh, specifics is that you get some really nice semantics when you know that you have all of the data in memory, you know, like if you're doing a batch system, like being able to do joins and know that you get, you actually joined everything. Uh, it becomes a little trickier to think about those kind of problems if you're streaming data. I think everything becomes incremental at best. So uh, I, th- I think we're, we're going to this model of systems that are stream-oriented and then they handle batches as well and they figure out how to represent these uh, traditional query-like ideas uh, in, in a, an intuitive way for streaming, but um, you know I, we're not quite there yet. So certainly an advantage of Spark, which is you know, instead 
started as a batch system and then implemented a mini batch model for streaming, it does give you this you know, very uniform treatment of, of actual processing where you can take your, your batch job, rewrap it in streaming logic, and now it just runs the same way. And it's now mini batches instead of big batches that are being processed. And, so that's and, a powerful and, and model. Even, even in the, the streaming framework, a streaming context, Spark is strongly consistent. Yeah, yeah. So it, it brings a lot of, of like, let's, let's call them mature capabilities that we've understood now from years of MapReduce and so forth that I think are valuable. I, I think all of that will, you know, be realized in, in streaming context too, but right now it's, it's maybe a more bleeding edge kind of problem. Yeah, and then uh, regardless, I guess, of the two options that we've described here, it seems like... Uh, the Lambda architecture is kind of falling to the wayside. I think so. I, I, you know, Spark supports it beautifully because you can share code. Uh, that was really kind of the biggest problem with Lambda architecture as I saw it was um, you often had entirely different systems like say MapReduce for batch and Storm for streaming, but which meant that it was hard to share you know, logic between the two that did non-trivial stuff. So you you kind of ended up rewriting a lot of code. Uh, that that problem largely goes away either with Spark streaming, or just a uh, like a pure stream-oriented system. So yeah. I do think we are going that direction. And I guess uh, the the first uh, move in that direction was in many ways scalding. It was yeah, and what yeah. So the Twitter scalding API that sat on top of cascading, that sat on top of MapReduce, gave you really nice, concise semantics that are very similar to Sparks for batch mode. Uh, but then they also used Storm a lot. They adopted uh, the Storm project, more or less, uh, and then had the same problem. So they, they came up with the Summing Bird API that right. sat on top of both of them to give you, you know, sort of the same semantics, but it would be you know targeted towards either Storm or or scalding under the hood. Yeah, and then it, I I thought for a while oh, this might become popular, but it never did. I guess Spark, once Spark released and then Spark Streaming came out, uh, people would just. I I think at this point Spark Streaming is uh, probably the more mo much more popular than Storm. Yeah, I th I think that is certainly the trend, if not if not the actual you know absolute numbers. Um, Certainly, you know, you have to always respect the trailblazers, even if they you know, don't survive long term, because oftentimes they showed us what we needed to do. And then, you know, we came along and rethought how to do it and did it in a better way or presumably better way. So other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about is cloud computing. It, it does seem like uh, companies are much more open to moving some of their workloads into uh, the cloud, particularly analytics, is this something you're seeing as well at TypeSafe? Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's a curious thing. There's certainly traditional companies like uh, finance firms that you know you just assume they're going to say no way, they won't even think about it. But then you start to hear that well, some of them are thinking about ways they can exploit the cloud, uh, maybe dropping their opposition to it. I do think that's the long-term trend that. Most companies will not self-host their own stuff unless they have like very large scale where they get economies of scale that are comparable to, to cloud hosting. But it'll just probably become an economic argument over time that they um, will recognize that it's just better to let someone like Amazon or Google or Microsoft uh, do the heavy lifting of uh, you know, large-scale operations and they can focus on their domain problem. You know, I think security, it's kind of an interesting 
issue here. Certainly one of the reasons that people like, you know, the banks or whatever would say, oh, we can't go into the cloud was they were worried about, you know, the security of their data. But I think we all have to realize that um, security is really, really hard in these systems. And sometimes maybe you're better off relying on the, you know, deep expertise that your Amazon and your Googles and so forth, rather than trying to have it in-house. So, And so the other thing too about it, it seems like as much as we uh, like and love all of these open source frameworks and components, uh, and as much as they're maturing, it still takes quite a bit of skill and effort to run all of these in production. Yeah, it does. Uh, that is that does seem to be another threat now, or tools like Docker and so forth that try to make it much easier to build deployable things that are easy to manage. So, still a lot of work to do there, I'd say. But so when. You know, I mean, uh, speaking of which, so when you were consulting maybe eight years ago or whatever, six years ago in big data, and now now as the tools uh, have gotten easier, I wonder if the skill set of engineers also have to evolve, right? So before, now, now that you have access to the cloud, maybe you can get by with knowing a little bit less detail about how to deploy some of these things and just, you know, uh, your DevOps skills is are really AWS skills, right? So, yeah, that's a curious thing. I think you're right that uh, certainly it's you know, how you deploy stuff is much more a front and center for developers. Maybe not in the specifics, like you say, of which monitoring tool I'm going to use in production, but we're we're all almost all of us now are writing distributed applications, uh, whether we're writing for mobile or you're writing microservices or whatever. So we have to be aware of the world and how we're going to talk to the world and how we're going to be resilient in the face of failure. But not, you know, it, the DevOps thing is an interesting thing because it is kind of bringing developers and operations together. But on the other hand, we're inventing ways to avoid developers having to be deep experts in operations, uh, which is a good thing. You know, hide, you know, let the experts figure out how to make Docker do most of the work for you or whatever and so I don't have to worry about it, but I just know how to use it. Right, right, right. But still, I mean, it's still the, I think, if you look back maybe 10, 15 years ago, the starting point for engineers might have been libraries, right? Now they're not, now they're these frameworks, right? So here, build something. You're using Spark, Kafka, Cassandra, yeah. right? Yeah, and you know, it's, you bring up something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, actually. It kind of goes back to what we were discussing a little bit ago about streaming, and you see this when you write Spark jobs. You know, most Spark jobs are like an order of magnitude smaller than MapReduce jobs. And most MapReduce jobs, even as complex as that could be, were often an order of magnitude smaller than, you know, like hand-rolled services that we were writing, say, you know, 10 years ago. And I think there's this, this is like maybe another meta trend that we're moving towards smaller script-like programs that integrate you know, very well-designed services that do things very well for us, like Zookeeper for master failover and Kafka for reliable, you know, message storing at scale and yeah. stuff. So, I, I th that's to me, that's kind of an interesting thing. I, I personally don't really want to write big programs anymore. I'd rather focus on solving problems with small, elegant programs <laughs> whenever possible. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think definitely, uh, definitely we're getting there. I think it's still, I mean, that's why, I guess companies like TypeSafe are around to help you make it even easier to run Spark on Mesos, right? So, uh, yeah, that's but, that's my goal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then you can concentrate on solving your business problem. Yeah, 
we very much want people to feel that way with Spark that they you know can rely on us to figure out the intricacies of running on Mesos while they can focus on their problems. So one other trend, uh, you are an ex-physicist. I'm assuming you pay attention to hardware. Yeah, I do. Yeah. So you've got, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I was just right before this, uh, we're recording this, I was just uh, hosting a webcast on Tungsten, mm, Project Tungsten yeah. of Spark, which is basically in CPU caching. So you've got yeah. this hierarchy, CPU, memory, the next generation SSDs, which are going to be close to RAM speed. So are you paying attention to any of these things? I do. I, I think it's both interesting, but also very, very practical and important for us to understand what's going on. And I, I listened to that uh, webinar that you guys did earlier, and, and it was great how they're thinking through these hard problems of, all right, how can we actually make memory usage more efficient and minimize the amount of work we do? And then, you know, when you start solving problems like that, you really can knock off performance issues very quickly and effectively. So that, that that's exciting. And I, I like that uh, the Spark developers are solving it for us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that we don't have to. What about uh, GPUs? Do you, do, you, do you pay attention to, I mean, the GPUs mostly now people associated with gaming. Mm -hmm. uh, but increasingly, because of deep learning, it's starting to uh, appear in data. Yeah, there's. Um, I think it's fascinating that you know, whatever years ago, maybe five or ten years ago, the GPU vendors recognized that they had this extremely scalable, high-performance compute engine that could be used for other things than That's just graphics. Great for linear algebra. Exactly. Yeah, and it's it's a yeah it really and it's it's a little surprising to me that it's not used more than it is. Although it could be that it's actually used heavily, we just don't notice it when we're running. You know. I, I think part of it is uh, <laughs> before, right? It's tied up in, for example, CUDA, right? So how many yeah. people uh, were familiar with that? But I think there's more and more APIs, maybe, or easier tools. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. It's it's still hard for average developers to write to those systems, even with higher, slightly higher level libraries like CUDA. But that is something I hope we'll see a lot. I think that question did come up in the webinar earlier today about tungsten. That it would be great for Spark to routinely delegate to GPUs when it's doing something that's really compute intensive, you know, like linear algebra. Yeah, I think that's in their roadmap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that makes sense. So data pipelines. I'm sure this is a topic that you folks at TypeSafe pay attention to. I mean, to some extent, I think uh, these directed acyclic graphs of data processing pipelines have been around for a while. Uh, they There's been tools. Now people are saying maybe we can use notebooks. But, you know, just my feeling with notebooks is they came out of kind of Mathematica and teaching and instructional uh, purposes. So I'm not sure they're really the tools for, for managing these uh, ma big pipelines, maybe for short data projects or you want to share it with a colleague, right? So mm -hmm. what's your take on all of this? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, and it also kind of reflects the divide between data scientists and so-called data engineers who are like traditional Java developers who are used to integrated development environments while data scientists are used to notebooks. But I, I'm seeing an interesting intersection. So one of the tools, uh, third-party tools that we're getting excited about is um, an open source project called Spark Notebook, which is like Andy a- Andy Petrella. Andy Petrella, exactly, the data fellows. Yeah, yeah. 
real, these guys are doing amazing stuff. I mean, it's a Scala-centric uh, notebook metaphor. It's running on top of Scala, uh, basically running on top of Spark, actually. But what's interesting about it, too, in, in this context, is that it, they are thinking about ways that you could deploy your notebook on Mesos or on Yarn or, you know, one of those systems so that you, so once you've defined this pipeline, you could actually run it at production speeds, uh, you know, over at scale. Uh, I, I've been talking with them a little bit about ways to expand how you could use the notebook as a prototyping tool, which is kind of how people use the, the raw uh, redevelop print loop or interpreter anyway. You know, they'll play with ideas, work them out. But uh, at the end of the day, do you, I... Are you're going to have to tie note, several notebooks together, right? So, yeah. So what I'm getting at is, could you use this as a really good way to prototype out, uh, like one of these scripts I was talking about earlier, right. and then have that, you know, managed in version control, maybe integrated into your IDE for like you know, working on the back end custom logic or whatever. So you kind of get the best of both worlds. So I'm, I'm hoping we'll get to that point. I think you're right. There's a bit of a divide at the moment as far as what you can do or what you would do, but uh, I can see that it, it could be closed. Yeah, I think there, I think what will happen is maybe you'll have you'll still have kind of that visual representation of the DAG, <laughs> but then maybe a, bo a box in the DAG is a notebook. Yeah, right. yeah, that's, that's very possible. I, I would like to see data engineers get used to working with the notebooks, in, in part because you know, sometimes when you're just working with code, you're not exactly sure what the data is going to look like or the best way to think about it. And if you can actually play with the data a little bit, even if it's a sample, and sort of see in your head uh, or you're even you know, on the screen uh, what it is you're actually working with, that can also uh, kind of spur your thinking. So I'd, my, my, personally, I'd like to see developers use it more than they, they do now, not just data scientists, but uh, you know, find the right balance of tools for what they're, what they're trying to do. So the other topic that uh, kind of uh, has uh, come across my radar recently is metadata. So it hmm. seems like uh, there's some interesting efforts around it. So part of it is around even this data pipeline that we've been talking about, you know, so as you, as you go from one end of the pipeline to the other, um, you might be doing a bunch of things with your data, and it be it would be nice if you could capture some of that metadata of all the things that you've been doing, and share it with other developers who may not be using your framework. For example, mm -hmm. you might be in Spark doing things to your data, and then maybe you want to share. Okay, here's what I did, and to another coworker who will uh, try to reproduce what you did in another framework. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting possibilities here. I think um, I, I think maybe a, a sort of a backstory about this is you know we our, our industry goes in cycles, right? Uh, and one of those cycles recently has been. Yeah, uh, we kind of said, oh, you know, SQL is too heavyweight, too expensive. Uh, we're in a world of semi-structured data, so, you know, no SQL <laughs> got really popular. And now we're seeing a swing back towards structured data because it's... You know, everything, it's is, everything is back to SQL, right? So, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, and most of the newer SQL engines, particularly the SQL and Hadoop engines, including Spark SQL, support JSON. Right, right. right. Yeah. So I, I think there is an interesting balance there. My, my personal view is, you know, working with big data, you have to think about performance. And I really try as early as possible to get any data set I have 
into a well-structured form, uh, you know, well-schematized and hopefully an efficient representation so that I can work quickly and, and re- you know, reliably with it so I know exactly what I have. You can't do that all the time, but, um, uh, you know, when people you know, get all philosophical about semi-structured data, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, all right, when is this going to be structured so I can actually do real work with it? You know, that's... Yeah. That's Actually, kind of I, mean, I mean, the metadata thing is interesting because um, there's a startup founded by some people out of Google called Alation, where uh, basically they take, you know, they take this notion of search, right? So imagine yeah. you're an enterprise with a lot of uh, systems, people running reports and queries across the system. But each of those uh, uh, data warehouses is generating metadata about how users are using the system, what joins are they doing, what reports are they running. Yeah. So what, what they do is they basically, you know, you want to look at the sales for the last quarter, you know, they, they will suggest to you which uh, report, which join, which SQL statement to run based on metadata alone. That's really, yeah, that would be a very clever and helpful thing. Um, I think an eye-opening event from... Yeah, there's all these artifacts that are generated that I think might be more valuable than we think, right? Yes. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, Going back to the cycle thing, I remember uh, two two quick stories. Once was uh, I was working with a client uh, years ago. This was actually before I got into big data stuff. Um, and found out like the business analysts in this particular company had all learned basic SQL queries so they could go into the data warehouse and ask their own questions of the data. And, you know, these are people who had no programming skills at all, but they knew basic SQL. And that was like the first eye-opening thing for me that, you know, maybe it matters <laughs> the kind of tools that we have available to people who aren't programmers like SQL, like Visual Basic and Excel, you know, to, to give them, to empower them without requiring them to be experts. Um, but I think the, the other one that you reminded me of um, uh, with your description just now of, of this uh, new initiative was, um, I don't know if you ever worked with ClearCase. Today, it's, oh, yeah. it's, yeah, it's kind of considered a joke by a lot of people. But in its early days, in the early 90s, it was a really amazing version control tool. And one reason it was so good was that it, it had a view onto all the developers' workstations, and it knew whether you had already compiled a Java or C++ or whatever file with certain flags. So if somebody else did the same compilation of the same file, it would just pull the object file over, and you didn't have to recompile it. So it was a really clever optimization. And it did this, again, like you said, because it was watching what people were doing. It knew what people had already achieved, and it just leveraged that, shared the work. So... Um, you started out as a physicist, but uh, I think of you as more on the data engineering side of the spectrum rather than data science. And actually, I've come across a bunch of people who started out maybe studying machine learning or some other quantitative discipline. They started out that way, but then they evolved and became more on the data engineering side, And which is interesting because actually... <laughs> The funny thing is that uh, while there's a lot of buzz around data science, we all know that data engineers are kind of the more val- the most valuable people around. Right? right? You can't really start a company without the data engineers, and maybe a, you need a handful of data scientists at the end. It's it's funny. It's true, though. It. Um... There's that joke uh, with the DJ Patel who joked that data science is like 80% d- 
data cleaning or something. Right, right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's true. It's it's a very important problem. It's not always the most exciting thing, but um, uh, it's definitely filling a gap between the sort of vision that uh, you know, an experienced data scientist might have, but maybe not the programming they're, shops. They're closer to the system, so they can even run the systems for you. Right? Yeah. 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 So it, it's a fun, that's one thing I like about this ecosystem. It's an interesting combination of skills and people types and so forth. So it, it keeps it exciting. So in closing, I mean, I guess you started out in physics, realized you liked programming. And obviously, you once you're in programming, you could have gone into any direction in programming. For, for that matter, you could have become a, a game programmer. They use a lot of physics. So <laughs> why, why, why did you end up in big data? Yeah, it really was uh, that I saw an opportunity to uh, uh, get involved in a growing, exciting industry with a lot of hard problems. Uh, a lot of, you know, initially it was you know, kind of not so great tools, but then the opportunity to make better tools or find better ways to do things. And it brought in kind of the mathematics and the data analysis. So it, it just kind of fit me, I think, in the long run. And, and it felt like I was doing, you know, kind of meaningful work. Not that what I was doing before wasn't, but uh, you know, we all are kind of motivated by different outcomes. And for me, it just seemed like the right fit. So I've been pretty happy with it and trying to you know, leverage my experience at TypeSafe for their benefit and my own, of course. So actually, uh, um, let's close by. So are there any particular initiatives out of TypeSafe that we should be uh, paying attention to? I guess we talked about one of them, which is uh, reactive streams. Anything else? Yeah, so we're continuing to contribute to Spark, both in the streaming implementation, the Mesos integration, uh, even on internals, like making it work better with Scala 2.11, which is the latest release, a lot of things like that. Uh, the other big initiative is uh, we okay. implemented... Before you continue, so the, yeah. the move from 2.10 to 2.11, anything there that Spark developer might affect Spark developers? Uh, it shouldn't. Uh, usually the only problem is if you're using a library that hasn't been compiled for 2.11, then you might you know, run into problems there. But it's for all practical purposes, they're nearly the same at the versions at the binary level, or at least at the source code level. So anyway, so I interrupted you. So you, That's okay. You had the 2.11 then, then what else? Yeah. So that's you know, the, there's just continued work on making the Spark on Mesos experience better, richer, and so forth, and working with Mesos and our other partners uh, for, you know, this whole ecosystem of tools. I mentioned this Reactive Streams earlier. We've, uh, we, we were founded by a creator of a project called Akka, which is a distributed actor-based middleware system that um, is used a little bit in Spark, but is also used a lot for general purpose microservices. And we've implemented the Reactive Streams standard in something called Aka Streams, which would give you uh, low latency streaming capabilities. Uh, right now it's single process, so it would be like a multi-threaded but very fast implementation. Eventually it'll be uh, distributed streaming. But the one thing we did mention that is a limitation of Spark streaming is because it's a batch mo uh, mini batch model, it's, uh, you know, it has a latency of whatever few seconds you define as your batch sizes. So. You know, for 90% of the streaming cases, that's good enough. But if you need more low latency processing of events, then something like Aka Streams, we think, is going to be a really powerful tool for bridging the gap between those those two requirements. So, is the 
uh, are the, the Spark developers are working towards uh, removing that limitation, right? Is that? Yeah, I, th I think that's true. It, it might take a while because, again, it's the assumptions about this underlying batch model are pretty core to the system, but I, I hope eventually that that will uh, not be required anymore. All right, so this has been great. So um, we'll see you next week, I guess, at the Strata Plus Hadoop World. And yes. uh, for those of you who are attending the conference in New York, Dean will be talking about two of his favorite things, which are? Spark on Mesos. <laughs> All right, thank you, Dean. Thank you very much, I really enjoyed it. You can follow Dean Wampler on Twitter, at Dean Wampler. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.